You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Howdy. Good to be with you guys today. Happy uh, Sunday after Easter, right? Uh, Hopefully you guys got to be here last week. I don't know about you guys, but man, it was just so refreshing. Just so joyful to come together and celebrate the resurrection, to have a cultural excuse to celebrate how good God is to us and the power of the resurrected Christ. Um, As we already said, I mean, that's just, that's kind of our thing. So that's what we're going to do today also. Uh, And I'm excited to get to it because we got a really weird text today. So we're going to get straight to it. If you guys want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, uh, as you're turning there, if you, if you don't have a Bible today, I'd encourage you to grab one of our house Bibles there at the end of each row. Uh, we just, man, we just really believe in, in the power and the importance of the Word of God in the life of the believer. And so if you don't own a Bible, please snag one of those or talk to one of our pastors. We'd love to get you one that's a little nicer than that. Some of these have chunks missing out of them. It's, they've been in service a while. Uh, but we are in Mark chapter 16 today. Um, and by the way, you know, I didn't, I, I just want to say this really quick while we're turning there. The, Craig mentioned the, the discipleship class. I'm really stoked for it. This, this Holy Spirit class, two weeks in a row. It's going to be cool. We're going to do a systematic construction of our understanding of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at uh, every passage in the Bible that talks about the Spirit of God, and we're going to see what that teaches us about. We're, we're going to go figure. We're going to try and learn about who God is by looking at what he actually said about himself. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be good. So, uh, love to see you there. Two weeks. Um, so we're in Mark 16. We're starting in verse 9. In the ninth verse, the 16th chapter of the gospel according to Mark tells us this. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he, this is he being Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hand. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And this is the word of the Lord. So we have a cool task in front of us today. I've been actually really excited to get into this text uh, for a really nerdy reason. Um, And it's that this is one of the most controversial texts in all of Scripture. 
And so we're going to get into that today. We're going to take a few minutes and talk about the, the problems or the controversy surrounding this text. And, and we'll, we'll kind of just discuss a little bit of the scholarship and opinion on that. And so just right off the bat, if that's not your jam, I just want to pre-apologize because <laughs> we're definitely going to get into the weeds of some theology and some textual criticism today. But we're going to talk about that. And once we've kind of, we're all on the same page on that, we're going to dig into the actual meat of this text. And I am just, I am just certain that God has something fresh and powerful and convicting for us today. And so the reason we're going to spend some time on the controversy surrounding the text is because that's not the point of our time. So we want to actually dig into that so that we can kind of get on the same page so that we can slow ourselves down enough to hear what God is saying today. Sound good? So let's pray real quick for the Holy Spirit's aid as we engage this, and then we'll continue on. Jesus, you are so stinking good to us. God, it is such a gift to to sit in this room with brothers and sisters and proclaim your worthiness, to be reminded of of the state of our own hearts apart from you, and to to look upon ourselves with with sober judgment, to see the rift between our self-serving hearts and your amazing, loving, other-centered heart, and then to see the grace that you have bestowed upon us, the love with which you have pursued us, the holiness of your person, the worthiness of your name, the intimacy of our relationship. God, you are so good to us. Holy Spirit, we ask this morning as we dig into your word that you would just make yourself evident. We ask that you would speak to us through this word, that you would convict our hearts, that you would remind us of the truth, that you would draw us to deeper repentance and greater dependence upon you. And God, ultimately, We pray humbly that this church, these people, us, these souls in this room, that you would not pass us by, that we would be active participants in your mission, in your work, that we would not sit on the laurels of our own salvation, but that your grace and love to us would fuel us to give grace and love to the world around us. Jesus, we love you. We trust you to do this work. So we pray boldly in your name. Amen. So first, the controversy. Most likely, your Bible has a big old bracket around this text. I know, I know some of you, like, we read this, and you're like, why wasn't this part of the Easter sermon last week? This seems like pretty much just the rest of the resurrection narrative. It would have been good to get into this on Easter. And there's truth to that, but we wanted to give, uh, we wanted to separate these two out for, for a specific reason. And essentially it's this, this section of Mark 16 is most likely not original to Mark. And your, your Bible probably notes that unless you're hanging out in here with like a 1611 KJV or a Geneva Bible, or maybe like an RSV, I don't know, that's like mid 1800s. But unless you're like just rocking a really old school Bible, there's going to be some kind of brackets here to say, hey, this text is not in the oldest manuscripts. Maybe you've got a big footnote at the bottom. Mine has like, it breaks, there's a big break and and lets you know that. 
And so I want to dig into that piece a little bit, because essentially we need to ask ourselves the question, did Mark write this text? Did did, did John Mark, the guy who penned the rest of the gospel, who heard the witness of Christ from Peter and wrote this letter, this story of Jesus to the persecuted church in Rome, did he pen these words? And the question behind that is essentially, is this actually Bible, (laughs) right? Is this actually part of the text? Is this actually Holy Spirit-inspired scripture, revelation of God, Or is this commentary? Is this apocryphal, if you want to use that term? I'm going to get into this with you guys, but the reality is I'm going to be brief. I'm going to dig into it, but to be honest, I'm going to ask you guys on some level to just trust my conclusions on this. And it's totally cool if you don't. We just don't have time to, to, I mean, like, you know, there's probably 5,000 dudes who've written their PhD dissertation on this this concept. We don't have time to dig into this fully, and so I'm, I'm going to give you my interpretation of the research, and I'm just going to say, if you geek out about this stuff, and you're interested in this, and you want to hear about my methodology and my sources, let's get out and get some coffee and talk, because I love to nerd out on this stuff. And if you disagree with my conclusions, totally cool, by the way. This is not like a really unified thing. In fact, I I talked to probably 15 different pastors and theologians about this over the last year as I was prepping for this. I've, been, I've seen this one coming a while, guys. And I had one pastor specifically rebuke me and say that I should not teach this text in a church setting because it is not scripture. And so I said, well, you're not the pastor at Red Tree. No, no, no. And then I left. <laughs> Didn't really say that. But I say that to say, this is not an, a settled issue, not even within our own theological tribe. If you were to grab 15 evangelical, even reformed evangelical scholars and pin them down on this text, you would probably get a pretty even split down the middle in terms of their thoughts on it. Now, I'm going to show you my cards right up front. I believe this is inspired scripture, and I think we can trust it, and I think you should trust it. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. Uh, but, but I want to get to that. So the, the whole thing is, essentially, uh, th- this comes down to a thing called textual criticism. Now, when, when we talk about the Bible, the Bible we have today, what, regardless of your translation, by the way, whether you're going back to the Geneva or the King James or you have the ESV or whatever, the Bible we have today is an English translation of a Greek and Hebrew manuscript of the whole Bible. That Greek and Hebrew manuscript was put together by a whole bunch of scholars who essentially collected it from thousands of fragments and copies of the scripture that were handwritten over the last 2,000 years, really. They, they kind of stopped handwriting them after the printing press came out. But you get my point. So remember, the whole of the Bible was written at a point in human history when there was no printing press. Every single copy of the scripture that was distributed to God's church for the first 1,500 years of church history was handwritten and delivered by someone. So a book like Colossians, right, that was 
written in the first century, and then thousands of copies were distributed throughout the Roman Empire by hand delivery, was copied over and over and over and over by hand with someone with a pen and a piece of paper looking at it and writing. Now us today, modern world with iCloud storage and typing in computers, that's astounding to us. But this was normative in that day. Like there was an entire profession built around having good handwriting, right? Some of you like older folk in the room are like, we still need that today. (laughs) Teach cursive to the kids. (laughs) Not mocking you if you like cursive. That is is cool. Cursive is cool. Uh, Cursive is cool, kids. Um, but there was an entire profession that existed around being able to accurately copy down stuff people had written and take down stuff people were saying accurately. Scribes. We hear about scribes in the Bible. Scribes were a profession. They were very well educated. Some of the intellectual elites of their day. And they had a very practical job to copy books and letters for people. So most of the new, not most of, most of the New Testament is letters that was written, but the New Testament as a whole was written originally by hand, and then as it was distributed, people copied it by hand and distributed it. So think back again to our book of Colossians, right? Paul wrote a letter to a church. He paid a scribe to come and sit down and take his dictation, and they worked on it, they edited it, they made sure it fit on the piece of paper they had, they wrote it down, it was delivered. That church said, man, this is super good, some other churches should read this. So they had a scribe in their town make two or three copies of it, and they sent it off to a couple other churches around Colossae. And those churches said, man, this is super good, Paul's really good, we like his stuff, we should send a copy to our friend. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on, for 1,500 years. So when you think about this, the whole, the whole field of textual criticism is essentially taking the body of manuscripts that we have and going, how accurate are they? If you think about something being written and, and hand-copied over multiple generations, you would assume that some form of the telephone game would start to happen, right? The little mistake here, a little mistake there, would begin to expound out and would get more and more different and more and more extreme as the generations of hand copies went on. That's, that, that, I mean, that's a reasonable assumption. By the way, two things. If this is not your jam and you just need to zone out for the next 10 minutes, I will let you know when we get back to the text. So, like, I know a couple of you right now are debating whether or not you can take a nap. You can. We will bring you back. Second thing is, if you want to dig into this a little more, Uh, than what I have time to do with you this morning. There's a great book called The Heresy of Orthodoxy that gives the history of textual criticism and really digs into the history of why we can trust the New Testament we have. And essentially, I'm going to give you just a couple of kind of the conclusion points of that because there's been a lot of critique of the Bible, especially the New Testament over the last hundred years, saying this, you can't copy something that many times in that many generations and not have the message be completely and totally corrupted. Which, by the way, is generally true. 
When you look at most textual criticism of most history, when you look at the body of work, pick your historical figure, what we know about Caesar, what we know of Josephus' history, what we know of Alexander the Great, and you look at the body of handwritten copies, there are almost always significant changes made really quickly. And over time, and the older the body of work is, the more significant the changes are. That's almost universally true except in the case of the Bible. And this is crazy. And I mean this. This is crazy. There is not a good explanation for this in scholarship world. We have easily 10 times the amount of manuscript evidence for the scriptures than we do any other ancient writing. So when you get down to someone like Alexander the Great, there's something like six or seven total pieces of ancient history that even tell us he exists. And they're hundreds of years apart, and they disagree, and there's massive changes between them. But textual scholars are able to work through that and pick, pick apart what they think is an accurate history of Alexander the Great. When you talk about the New Testament, you're talking about tens of thousands of copies and fragments and pieces. And the reason for that's really simple. The church blew up and became one of essentially the most powerful large religions in human history. And so those books were copied a ton. In fact, you can actually look to the spread of Christianity for the advancement of literacy. You know, and, and we're going to get into this for, in, a, in a second, because this is actually really important to our understanding of the text today. But when the New Testament was originally written, everything was still on scrolls. We hadn't transitioned to books yet. Those are these things that are kind of like Kindles, but instead of a screen, there's paper. It's weird. You, you, see, them, you see them sometimes like in Goodwills and stuff like that. Anyway, they hadn't transitioned from scrolls to books yet. The New Testament is one of the main cultural forces that pushed humanity into using books. Because you couldn't fit the four Gospels on a single scroll. You had to buy the collection. And that was a pain to carry around. And they realized you could make a lexicon, which is like the great-grandfather of a modern book, and you could fit all four Gospels in one lexicon. And they said, hey, this is awesome. It's way easier to carry. And so they switched over to lexicons, and eventually we had books and now Kindles. And now everyone's reading everything off their phone, and your eyes are getting ruined. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously. So the whole thing is, with Scripture, we just have insanely more evidence than we do of any other ancient text. Thousands of fragments of partial and whole manuscripts of all the different books of the Bible, all the different books of the New Testament, leading back really close to the original writing date. There are fragments of Mark that lead back to the first and very beginning of the second century. I mean, within a few decades of the original book being written, that is unheard of in ancient history unheard of. The Bible is the only text that has that body of manuscript evidence behind its translation. And not even close. Like the next closest second is in the dozens, not the thousands, right? So we have lots of textual evidence for the Bible, which allows textual scholars to really accurately discern back the history of translation. Because the reality is the telephone game did in fact happen with Bible manuscripts, but so much less 
than what is normative for ancient historical texts, that it becomes a really interesting, it's like a specific field of study, even for non-believers, to look at the transmission of the text in, in the Christian scriptures because it's significantly more accurate than in other areas of history. And so people dig into that stuff and they look at it. And what's crazy is the vast majority of textual errors, if you want to call them that, are grammar and spelling mistakes. Because here's the thing, if you're a scribe and you're in a city and you're the only literate person and everyone pays you to write their stuff, you don't have to spell stuff right because they don't know, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sure, that's totally how you spell Josephus. No, yeah, trust me. <laughs> what are they going to do? The vast majority. Now, I say that to say there are a couple big textual concerns the New Testament scholars have to deal with. Mark 16 is one of them. John 1 and John 8 are the other two really big ones. But Mark 16 is probably the most famous one. And the reason is this. The vast majority of Mark manuscripts include the end of Mark 16. Something like 95% of our manuscripts about Mark include Mark 16, which normally would just go, oh, okay, so it's probably original. But what's interesting is the oldest and most complete manuscripts of Mark omit it, which leads to a really interesting thought process. Essentially, what you're left with is, well, it was likely added. And there's a couple other reasons, by the way, to think it was added. It, it uses a very, uh, it uses a different tone for one thing, but it uses a very different vocabulary, and it's grammatically structured differently than the rest of Mark, which you could work your way around. You could say that it's, uh, and, and a lot of conservative scholars do, would say, um, well, you know, it's his conclusion. He's celebrating the resurrection. He changes his tone and changes his vocabulary. You could argue that. But, but it, is, it is significantly differently written than the entire rest of the book. And, and it doesn't seem to maintain a lot of the themes um, and a lot of the structures and a lot of the, the normative like linguistic things that Mark has set for the whole book. But in, anyway, what it seems like is that essentially at some point early on, this was added. And for whatever reason, the copy that had it added, that became the dominant stream of future copies. Does that kind of make sense? So remember, so, so, right, so Mark is written, it's given to the church in Rome, they go, man, this is super good. We should have some copies made and send it out. And so they set it out to this church and that church and this church and that church. And they go, oh man, this is super good. And it keeps spreading out and you end up with these different streams of copies, right? If one is going west and one is going east, then the, these copies aren't going to touch each other, right? The, the future generations are going to be disconnected. And so what you have here is a branch of manuscripting that became dominant that has an addition. And most likely, that addition happened really early. Like we're talking right around the turn of the second century. Because that's, that's I mean, it, it would have to be that. When you look at the writings of the church fathers in the early second century, it's split down the middle which ones affirm or include this part in their quotes from Mark and which ones don't. Uh, and so it's likely an addition. There are a lot of scholars that say it isn't, um, but it's, if it's an addition, it's a very early addition. In fact, most scholars who say, most conservative scholars who say it's an addition would say it was an addition that was made still within the window of when we were collecting scripture, right? So that's the piece. I, I think it's trustworthy as scripture for, for just a couple brief reasons. 
Collaborative writing was really common at that time. Most of the New Testament had more than one hand in the writing of it because it's not about the human author, it's about the Holy Spirit's inspiration, right? It's so early added and it's so attested to by the early church fathers. It was completely accepted by the Council of Nicaea that, that canonized the scripture a few hundred years later. It just seems wise to listen to their wisdom and say, man, I think the Holy Spirit just preserved this for us. I think the Holy Spirit worked through this to preserve it for us. And I just think that's true. And you can disagree with me on that. And it's totally cool. And here's the reason it's totally cool. Even if you say this isn't scripture, it's, it would essentially just be first or second century commentary on the rest of the Gospels. Because what's beautiful and unique about this text is the writer includes all the major themes of the other three Gospels. He's a dude who's really familiar with Matthew, Luke, and John, and he brings in the main interpretive theme of each of those Gospels and builds it into this summary of the resurrection narrative at the end of Mark. That's crazy. And, and what is often, by the way, and this is speculation, what's often speculated what happened here is essentially you have a church who hears about another church in need of scriptures, which, by the way, is a thing at this point in church history. Hey, did you hear a church popped up in De Pere? Pick a city. They're all new believers. No one has a Bible. It's crazy. There's a guy preaching, but he's just going off memory of what the guy who started the church told him. Well, oh, shoot, we have a whole Bible. We should get them some of that stuff. So let's copy and send some stuff over. Oh, but wait, the church is persecuted. You meet in secret. You have your property seized on the reg. You don't have any money to come pay a scribe. We can scrap together a little bit of money. We're not going to get a whole New Testament. And the scribe says, listen, you're not going to get a whole new. You're going to get one scroll. Pick your scroll. So you sit down and you look at your New Testament. We sit down as a church. We're looking at it and we go, well, John would be good. That's a two scroll book. Okay, we can't do John. Luke would be awesome. Well, that's three scrolls. Okay, we definitely can't do Luke. Matthew's too, Mark's the only one scroll book. Mark's the only one scroll gospel. Seriously. It's like half the length of the other ones. Fits on one scroll. So you can imagine easily a church scenario where they're going, that church in De Pere needs some scripture. We don't really have any money. This is all we got. We can send them Mark. And so they pay the scribe and he puts together Mark and they get to the end and, and the scribe's sitting there going, this ending is kind of anticlimactic, don't you think? <laughs> and you're kind of going, yeah, it is. But this is all we can send him. And he's like, well, you've got four inches left on the scroll. What do you want to put? And so you sit there and you go, well, can we just summarize Matthew, Mark, and Luke really quick? Yeah. And so you put it together, stick it on the last four inches, and you mail it off to the pair, and now they've got the gospel of Mark with nine extra verses, 11 extra verses, right? And that's speculation. Something like that, I think, is likely what happened. Maybe not that exact scenario, but something like that. A church or a group of church leaders attempting to help another church, limited resources. They send them Mark, and they go, man, that really cool cliffhanger ending of Mark that helped the persecuted church in Rome come to a personal response and engagement in the work of the gospel is awesome. But we also want to give this church a little more theology, right? So you can kind of see how something like that or something similar to that would happen. Ultimately, when you get down to it, this last, this last section, all it does is summarize the teaching of the other three Gospels. It adds 
No new doctrine or no new teaching to our understanding. So even if you believe it to be apocryphal, my suggestion to you would be, then just look at this like some really cool scripture commentary from some of the earliest Christians and be encouraged by it. Allow a really early church's reading of the, four or the three other gospels to challenge you today. Even if you don't think it's scripture, which I think it is, and I think you can trust it in that way. Does that make sense? Kind of all on board on that, clear as mud? Cool. Let's jump into the text. If you were zoning out, you can zone back in now. Hi! So we're in Mark chapter 16. <laughs> so let me summarize the story for us, and then we'll, we'll pick up what we've got here. So essentially, you've got a couple scenes here, right? So this is after the resurrection. Jesus has come back to life. The, 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 the women have come to the tomb. They found it empty. The angel said, hey, Jesus is risen. It's crazy. Go tell everyone. They freaked out. They didn't tell anyone. And then this author says, well, later Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and said, go tell. And so she did go tell, but they didn't listen. And then later Jesus appeared to these two guys traveling, road to Emmaus, found in Luke. And they went and told, but they didn't believe him. And then finally, Jesus showed up to the 11 and said, why didn't you believe them? I'm right here. Check it out. And they freaked out and said, oh my gosh, you're right. And then Jesus goes and he gives them the great commission. He instructs them in their new role in his church and what the kingdom of God is going to look like post-resurrection. And once he describes that, he ascends into heaven, and he then partners with them in ministry moving forward. I love this. I love this piece because it's this beautiful immaculate, it's this beautiful, I couldn't come up with the word, it's this beautiful mixture of the other three gospels. You see, John's passion about the foundation of the gospel being believed. They didn't believe, they didn't believe, they do believe. And Jesus says, go invite others into belief, right? You see, Matthew's like emphasis on the idea of participation. You are in the kingdom work. There is work for you to do. Go and tell. And you see Luke's emphasis on the broadness of the church, that it isn't just the 11, that it's also these two unnamed disciples, that it's also these women who are part of the ministry, and they're going and they're speaking to everyone, not just a select few. You see these themes that the other gospel writers, you know, took like 15, 20 chapters to get to, and this, this guy gets them in there in just a couple of verses, and I love that. So essentially what we have to look at to really dig into this text is just what's, what's being gotten at by these scenes. And I think it's clear, right? This is, this is a retelling of the Great Commission, right? Jesus appears in his resurrected form a few times. He gives a final command, and then he returns to heaven, and then the age of the church begins. If you've read Luke, if you've read John, if you've read Acts, none of this is new, right? This is familiar ground, just given to us in a really compact passage, right? So I love, I love the way Christ connects this idea of belief to our inclusion in the gospel. This is so foundational to our understanding of Christianity. It's not about action. It's about belief in the finished work of Christ. Jesus 
spent his whole ministry preaching the truth and doing signs, and no one got it. No one understood it. And even when these, these brothers and sisters in the faith come and declare the truth, he has risen from the dead, they still don't believe it. But when Jesus Christ shows up in his resurrected body, in his power and authority as the ruler of the universe, they believe. Because you don't encounter the risen Christ without having your heart changed. You can't get away from it. So Jesus appears to them and says, they told you. Why didn't you believe? And they go, oh, we do now. Because you don't have a choice in the matter at that point. He's talking to you. He's there. He's risen. Everything he said is now validated. And and what I think is beautiful also about this text is that we're given this connection between the declaration, the proclamation of the gospel and the signs of the gospel that accompany it. And that's an interesting piece, and I think that's, I think that's probably what we need to actually zone in on today, especially because if, if, we're, if we're studying this text or texts like it, this will be the part that, that most offends our modern sensibilities, and it's going to be the part that we want to avoid. But, but Jesus, when he gives the Great Commission, right, he says, go, preach the gospel to everyone everywhere. Call them to belief and baptism. And by the way, I don't want to get sidetracked here. It it would be really easy to look at this text and essentially say, well, are they saying you have to be baptized to be saved? And and some people would hold on to that. But I I, I just don't want to get caught up here. But what you need to know to understand that is essentially this. For the early church, for the earliest Christians, the idea of believing in Christ and following him in obedience and being baptized in him were so interwoven, asking the question, well, could you still be saved and not be baptized? They wouldn't have a category for that question. They would be like, but you believed him and you want to walk in obedience, right? Like what's, I don't, they wouldn't have disconnected the two. And so when it says here, believe and be baptized, it's not giving you an extra work to obtain your salvation. This is a synonym for the early church of responding to the gospel. Which by the way, I, again, I don't want to belabor this point, but that's probably worth your meditation. There, there are a lot of us in our, in our modern, right, our, our post-Reformation sensibilities that have tried really hard to separate some of this stuff out, and there are probably some of us who have chosen not to actually be obedient to Christ in baptism. And I'm not telling you you have to be a Baptist. I'm not trying to harp on that, if, if that's not your theological jam. I do think it's worthy of your time to reflect on what it means to respond in Christ in obedience, especially in the way that the Bible talks about it. So if that's something maybe that picks at you, let's grab a coffee and talk about it. But Jesus, he, he gives him this peace, go preach to everyone everywhere. If they believe, they'll be saved. Go be a part of the work. And then he says, and look for these accompanying signs, Right? And he outlines some stuff that's not actually new to the believers. He had already talked to them when he commissioned them. You see this in every gospel telling of the commissioning of the 12, that Jesus connects miraculous signs of their preaching. Go, preach the good news to the poor, heal the sick, and cast out demons, right? Here we just get a little more detailed list of some of these signs. You'll do things like 
cast out demons and pick up serpents and not be poisoned and heal the sick and speak new tongues. And some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. As long as it's an earthly language. And if that's you right now, get out of here. You're such a nerd. Uh, <laughs> you shouldn't know that much about that. Uh, but he gives these accompanying signs. And all, all I, I don't want us to get caught up here again. It's easy to trip here and go, oh, well, Jesus is saying if you're saved you'll get bit by poisonous snakes. No, no, that's not the point. In fact, if you go and actually read through Acts and read through early church history, you'll see that none of these things are uncommon. That the early church, when it was proclaiming the gospel and the church was growing, the proclamation was always partnered with miraculous signs to increase faith. The more might believe. And none of these things are uncommon to the church of Acts and the early church of the second century. These are the sort of things that were expected. That might make you uncomfortable in this room. Listen, I'm not telling you you got to go home and pray in tongues or anything like that. But I am saying this. You 100% know that when you participate with Christ, and you proclaim his gospel to the lost, I guarantee that when you have been in a place of boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel to the dead and dying in need of hearing it, that you have experienced Christ move to affirm the truth of that. And if you haven't, I would argue that you're either not doing it or you're not seeing the supernatural work he's doing. Because I, I love this, and I think this is probably what God has for us today. I'm going to reread this. Verse 19. And the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Beloved, Jesus reigns. And they went out and preached everywhere. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Beloved, when we are invited into the kingdom of Christ, when we are told, go therefore and make disciples, you are not sent on your own. Jesus says, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The Lord partnered with them. Jesus is working with his church to see the dead raised to life, to see the lost be found, to see those in desperate need of the gospel find freedom and life and hope in Christ. You are not an island unto yourself. This is post-cross. This is post-Pentecost. If you are washed in the blood of Christ, then you are a temple of the living God, and the Holy Spirit himself dwells within you and works through you to accomplish the work of the kingdom. Amen? Amen. I think if we do not see God working in amazing, powerful ways while we faithfully proclaim the gospel to the lost and dead and dying world, then we need to ask the question, if we are faithfully proclaiming the gospel to the lost and dead and dying world. 
And maybe you say, no, listen, I am. I read the book. I'm doing the whole relational evangelism thing. I've been like getting to know this dude and getting out and getting drinks and talking shop about the blues for the last three years. Trust me, we're getting there. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But I am saying this. Maybe you are doing that. Maybe you are actually doing the work of building relationship and seeking to proclaim where and when you can, right? Do you expect God to move in miraculous ways? Do you actually think the world works that way? That's a really good question to ask yourself. Do you actually believe that when you respond in obedience and you participate in the work of the kingdom that Jesus himself commissioned you to do, that he'll show up supernaturally and partner with you? Do you believe that? Because I feel like most of us, if we're honest, would say yes in this room, right? But our lives pretty much say no, not really, right? Because we've experienced too much of the world and we've seen too many shysters who, who claim the name of Christ and yet really are ripping people off and, and hurting people, right? We've seen too many claims of things that are supernatural that are really just fleecing people. And so we're cynical, we're doubtful. We've had too many times in our own life where we ask for God to move, to, to save a relationship or to free us from a sin or to fix some circumstance and it didn't come out the way we want and so we have become cynical to that. We don't actually expect God to move in those miraculous and supernatural ways. Or maybe we've just been in church our whole life and we've just really convinced ourselves that this is what church looks like, not what's described in Scripture. Now, I don't say that to be mean. But we all got to be honest for a minute, right? I mean, people were getting teleported in Acts so they could go preach the gospel to more people. Right? That's crazy. When was the last time the Holy Spirit teleported you somewhere to preach the gospel to someone? Right? Some of you are like, I just showed up here this morning. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I woke up in Albuquerque. I'm here. I don't know. Welcome to St. Louis. A lot of us are cynical to the idea of God working supernaturally in our world right now here. And we would even be willing to accept, man, if I brought in Pastor Saju and he came in and told you testimonies of the gospel on the front line in a closed country where there's persecution against the church and he started sharing with you the amazing supernatural things God has done to preserve the message of the gospel in a place like India and in hearts like Mazar, the Muslim imam who came to Christ and has had his life threatened, we would hear that and go, yes, that's what I'm talking about. The spirit is real. He does his miraculous work. Amen. See you later, and then we'd go back to our office and we'd act like God doesn't do that stuff here because people would be suspicious of it. Right? Right? Beloved, I'm here to tell you, if you're looking for Jesus, if you want to experience the person of Jesus, you got to go where he is. Do you know where Jesus is? 
He's out preaching the gospel to the lost, the dead, and the dying. He's out working alongside his church to proclaim the truth of death to life to everyone everywhere. If you want to meet with Christ, if you want to experience the power of the gospel, then go hang out with Jesus. Jesus is out preaching the gospel to the lost. Go do that, and you'll hang out with Jesus. And I don't mean that. I don't mean that in some like metaphorical sense. I mean that. Go actually to real human beings who don't know Jesus and tell them about him. And do that over and over and over and over and over in lots of places to lots of people. And you'll meet the person of Jesus. And you'll see him work through your life. And you'll see him do things that cannot be explained. And you'll see him do the miracle of awakening dead and calloused hearts to life. You will preach something that as you're saying it, you go, this is stupid. This person won't believe this. And then you'll see the Holy Spirit supernaturally open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel and to see the mortal peril of their own soul. And they'll actually believe. And they'll actually repent. And you'll actually witness a resurrection from the dead. Beloved, this is the work that Christ does. It draws the dead to life. He invites you to be in that with him. If we're honest, we like to use a lot of this stuff as a cop-out. God doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. Those sort of miracles don't happen anymore. We don't pray for healing. That's just not how that stuff works anymore. And what we're really saying is, I just really don't want to be on the front lines of preaching the gospel because it's super uncomfortable. I don't want to bear the cost that'll actually cost me socially, productively, financially, relationally. It's a pain. I'd rather not. So I won't. But I'm going to tell you the reason is because Jesus doesn't do that stuff anymore. That might be harsh. You might be in this room and you're a super passionate cessationist and you preach the gospel all the time and you think I'm a jerk right now. And if that's you, I'm sorry. I'm just being confessional because that's me. I believe 100% that God works miraculously in other places through other people. But man, here, Jesus is inviting us into that work. Jesus is inviting me into that work. Jesus is inviting me to actually invite my neighbors into my house and actually get to know them and actually have a meal, and actually tell him what my life is about, and tell him why Jesus matters to me. Jesus is inviting me to have that awkward conversation with a cousin, and tell him what I think Jesus actually thinks of them. Jesus is inviting me to actually build intentional relationships with my daughter's friends, parents, and the people in our neighborhood so that I can destroy those relationships by proclaiming Christ to them. And if I'm honest with you, I don't want to. It's inconvenient, and it's a pain, and I'm busy, and this is comfortable. 
we all already believe the same stuff. So I can come in here and tell you guys how Jesus raises the dead to life and you all shout amen. And you tell me I did a good job preaching. And we all even go to lunch and I feel great about myself. That's not inconvenient. That's wonderful. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 1 at our time. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Elders are going to fire me after this. <laughs> you just said you don't do what? Church in Corinth is probably the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament. A lot of really blatant, outspoken sin that was destroying their witness to the community around them. I know you guys don't have a category for that, a sinful church, but Corinth was one of them. Starting in the first verse of the second chapter, we hear this. And I, this is Paul writing to the church, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Beloved, the gospel is foolishness to those who are dead and dying. Seriously. Walk up to one of your coworkers and say, hey, do you know this guy died 2,000 years ago? It was brutal. And then he came back to life, and that means your life can be awesome? That's foolishness. That's not wise. It, it, ha- it bears no meaning on the life of the average American in 2019. It just doesn't. But I tell you what, when you meet the risen Christ, when he reveals himself to you, and he shows him as himself as the reigning ruler of the universe... You believe him. When he shows himself in power, you believe his message. You did. Right? At some point, someone preached the gospel to you enough times, and the Spirit crept into your heart and said, This is not just a thing, this is everything. And your heart was open to the truth of the gospel, and your life was changed. Right? Beloved, it is not with eloquent words. It's not because I went to seminary or you went to an an apologetics workshop and you can prove that this is a historical fact. It's because God is real. It's because Christ rose from the dead and he's the king of the universe and he is reigning in power and authority over a dead and dying and lost world in desperate need of him. And when he shows up in power, dead souls come to life in response to him. And you are invited to participate in that. I'm going to give one last word and then we're going to be done. Beloved, you need to know something. Christ's church 
is victorious, period. Christ is king. This is his. He rose from the dead. He stomped death flat, and he took back what is his. His church will move forward. His kingdom will be made manifest. He will return in power and authority and claim what is his. It's happening. You can't stop it. You can't change it. And no one can. But man, you know what you can do? You can waste your entire life and miss out on all of it. And you can enter into the kingdom by the skin of your teeth. Scripture says that there are some who will enter into the kingdom as one escaping a fire. You can make the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years as little about Christ as you can get away with and as much about you as you can get away with. And you might still make it in by the skin of your teeth because Christ is triumphant and he's gracious and he's loving. Why would you do that? Why would that be appealing? Honestly. Doesn't that sound like a really just waste of a perfectly good life? Would you not rather give yourself fully to the work of the kingdom and enter into eternity with joyful celebration of your reigning king who is the lover of your soul? Would you not rather give yourself joyfully to his work and suffer many things, many light and momentary afflictions on this earth that you might rejoice with the lover of your soul for eternity? Isn't it not just a better life to live? Christ, we love you a ton. Really poorly, mind you but we do love you a ton. We love you as best we know how. Which is tinted with selfishness. God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of Red Tree Church. I pray that you would cut us to the quick God, I pray that you would shine a spotlight on the idols of comfort and self-love and laziness that we bow down to and worship in our lives. God, I pray that you would draw us to genuine repentance, that we would cast down those idols. God, even as I'm saying those words, I feel my own heart pushing back against that. Because these words sound great in this space, but I really want to go home and live my life for me. Christ, kill that in me. Kill that in us. God, we have met you. You are risen. You are king. We believe you. God, may we be a people who participate in your kingdom who chase after you and join you in the work, who cast aside our love for this world and our 
our love for the idols that seduce us, and we pursue you. And God, I pray that you would build in us an eager expectation of your work. That we can't say anything to make anyone believe. For some reason, when we go and we proclaim, you choose to show up and accompany that proclamation and do miracles in this dead world. God, I want to be a part of that. I want us to be a part of that. I don't want to miss that, Lord. Do not pass us by in our self-centeredness. Call us up to join you in the work. Woo our hearts to you. And let us see that the emptiness of the pleasures we seek. Let us not be satisfied with a life that is bent inward. But God, give us a yearning for the satisfaction only you can provide. God, you're just really good to us. Help us to love you more. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.